everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSightNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to somebody who I've known for quite a long time, and many of you are probably familiar with as well, and that is uh, international speaker Stephanie Gray Connors. Now, most of you will know her as a pro-life speaker from her talks, uh, not only across the United States and Canada, but from around the world. And from her talks at places like the Students for Life of America conference at the March for Life or uh, at her Google talk from 2017, which is continuing to rack up hits on YouTube. I met Stephanie, I think, in 2009 or 10 when I first joined the pro-life movement and eventually was hired by her as communications director for the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. And we'll get into uh, her the trajectory of her career in a bit. And so I wanted to talk to uh, Stephanie Gray Connors. Uh, She got married recently, so I have to keep on reminding myself to to finish her name uh, when I'm introducing her. We wanted to talk about what it's like to talk to abortionists, uh, her new book, which I think you'll all be very interested to hear about, and what life has been like for her since she left CCBR, started becoming uh, an international speaker focusing primarily on writing and speaking to large audiences on life issues, and what she thinks about the current situation going on right now. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. All right, well, my first question, uh, because I think most people listening to this know, but some might not, is how did you get involved in the pro-life movement to begin with? Mm. So, I mean, really my beginnings began at my beginnings. My parents were both really involved in the pro-life movement. My mom tells a story of how she was about eight months pregnant and waddled in Vancouver into a pro-life talk with, uh, I believe it was Bernard Nathanson, the former And she can't remember whether she was pregnant with me or my sister, but it goes to show that it goes that far back that my parents were involved. So I grew up going to conferences and rallies and protests and pregnancy centers and all of that stuff. And then the pivotal moment in terms of influencing that I would make pro-life work my career Mm -hmm. was when I was 18 and I was studying at UBC and I attended a national campus life network symposium. And back then NCLN, I think was one or two years old. Okay. So NCLN had this symposium where they invited an American speaker, Scott Klusendorf to Canada to do an apologetics training. And I attended and I remember being wowed by three things. The first was he was a really engaging speaker and the arguments he was giving me for how to defend the pro-life view. I thought I can totally apply this on campus. Number two, he played an abortion victim photography video called the harder truth. And it not only showed abortion victims after abortion, but abortion in progress. And that just gutted me. I remember sobbing, going to the bathroom afterwards to wipe my eyes And the third thing Scott did that weekend was he said, there's more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. And it was those words that made me think, okay, he's equipped me how to argue. He's influenced my emotions to want to take this issue more seriously. And now he's really making me think I need to make this my career and not just volunteer in the pro-life movement, but work full-time. What was your career plan before the pro-life movement? If I recall correctly, I think it was Greg Cunningham of CBR who said that you turned into Scott with a skirt. So he was very pleased with how your career went. But what were you planning to do before you ended up eventually founding the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform? Yeah, so that's very interesting. So 
I had big dreams to actually be a famous actress. And when I was in high school, I signed up with an acting agency in Vancouver to do extra work. So I was on a Sunny Delight commercial. I was an extra in the X-Files, the old TV series that used to air um, Millennium. It was another TV show. So like I did extra work and I thought, okay, my parents really wanted me to go to university. So I thought, okay, well, then I will do theater. Right. So I went to UBC. That was my initial plan. Um, but when I heard Scott in my first year is when I realized, okay, if I'm going to do full-time prolific work, maybe theater should be my major. And then, so I started taking history and political science and then ended up deciding to major in political science. So how did you go from theater to when you founded CCBR? Now, most people know that you and Jojo Ruba co-founded CCBR in 2001. Yes. And you were the ones who not, didn't bring the use of abortion victim photography to Canada because I believe Rosemary Connell of Show the Truth has that distinction. But certainly yes. in terms of bringing uh, the truth trucks um, and uh, once a month, um, Choice Jane Street displaced to Vancouver initially were the ones that sort of, of mainstreamed it and then later on sort of professionalized it. Right now, mm -hmm. um, CCBR does. Well, last year we had 4.1 views, a million views of abortion victim photography Canada wide which is crazy considering what it was 10 years ago, but that was started by you guys and is a pretty far cry from the, um, from theater. And also I think a lot of people would say it is also a pretty edgy thing for somebody doing pro-life apologetic speaking to do. So how did you end up going from getting involved with, with, with Scott to then starting the Canadian branch initially of CBR? So that's a great question. So January, 1999 is when I met Scott and it was in, I think it was May of 1999, several months later. So I came back to my campus because the event was in Toronto and then I flew back to Vancouver. I started giving talks right away. And so right. I started giving apologetics talks and I was incorporating the abortion victim video in my talks, just like Scott had trained us to do. But in around May of 1999, I had become the president of the pro-life club at UBC for the next year. And our club email address got an email from a group called the Center for Bioethical Reform. And they said, we go to college campuses with an exhibit called the Genocide Awareness Project. And in the fall of 99, we're going to be coming to the Pacific Northwest. We're doing Oregon. We're doing Seattle. We would love to take this project into Canada for the first time. We heard you have a good group on your campus at UBC. Is your club interested in inviting us to display this exhibit? So that's when I got introduced to CBR. And so then our club invited CBR onto campus. And in September of 99, it was supposed to go ahead. And that's when we realized Canada is not a free country. And the university wanted to charge us $10,000 a day for security, which basically prohibits the poor from ever having free speech. And only the rich would be allowed mm -hmm. to express themselves. And they had all these just ridiculous restrictions that effectively made it impossible to do the exhibit. And so we then battled with the university, lawsuits were started. And through that whole process, I was working very closely and being formed by Greg Cunningham, the founder of CBR. And he was really training me in social reform movements and how to confront the culture and what the civil rights movement did. So for the first half of 99, I kind of had a, an immersion in pro-life apologetics. And then you could say for the last half of 99, my immersion was more so in pro-life strategy. So that as 99 turned into 2000 and we started as a pro-life club doing gap on campus, not bringing in Americans, which clearly was not going to work in Canada 
but making our own signs and doing a similar version of it. As we started taking the pictures to campus and then supplementing our exhibit with pro-life apologetics, um, Scott Klusendorf then said in the year 2001, hey, I'm doing a fundraising training seminar in New Jersey. I've been mentoring you, but also some other Canadians, this guy in Ontario named Jojo Ruba. I'm inviting him. I'm, I'm inviting others to learn how to fundraise to do full-time pro-life work. Would you like to come to the seminar? So May of 01 is when I met Jojo and there was uh, 10 of us in total that were from Canada that came to the seminar. And so it was there where we realized we're now trained in how to fundraise. So what are we, who are we fundraising for? What organization are we going to work through to do the pro-life work we think needs to be done? And at that point, because of GAP and because of Scott and the apologetics, we thought what Canada needs is full-time workers taking the pictures and the apologetics together, which caused us at that seminar to create the Canadian CBR. Um, And I remember even we had a whole debate and discussion. Do we call ourselves CBR Canada or the Canadian CBR? Because CBR Canada just sounded like we were an adjunct. Whereas Canadian CBR, we're like, well, we would be independent, entirely, you know, self-sufficient. So maybe we should throw the Canadian in front instead of tack it on at the end. And, and so we well, that was the right decision looking back. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, although every newspaper article still talks about imported American tactics right. and <laughs> things yes. like that. So when we have, obviously, I, I know, I know the interim history because I came on exactly 10 years ago last month, and that was the year after you guys had hosted your first ever CCBR summer internship. And we were just catching up about some of the people that were on that internship. Many of them are still involved in the pro-life movement. Quite a few of them actually in a full-time capacity from those first two internships, 2010, 2011. Uh, and then as activism grew, your speaking career went well, it went international, basically. You used to do a lot of speaking in Canada, but um, as any Canadian pro-life speaker knows, there's only so many rubber chicken dinners that you can do. Um, like, the, I love the Canadian pro-life movement very much, but it's very small. So at a certain point, you know, you've spoken at all of the conferences and you've done all the dinners. And I know that you've spoken in Europe all the way across the United States, quite a few times in Latin and South America. And so in 2014, you started pursuing that full time. Now, for people who don't know about the interim period, and I've just seen you pop up at you know Google and and pop up at SFLA and all these different places, the most recent of which was two debates in a row with abortionists, right? Malcolm Potts on Matt Brad's show, and then uh, Peter Singer with Harvard, was it? Yeah. So now Singer himself isn't an abortionist, but he's a heavy abortion right. promoter. But Malcolm Potts is an abortionist. So yeah, within one week, I debated both of them online. Um, the, the Malcolm Potts debate, I think, has well over 50,000 views. The Singer debate was more of a closed event. So at this point, it's just over about 5,000 views. But yeah, those were two very significant public figures and kind of um, are what I've been focusing on more in recent years is really diving into the, the teaching, the formation, the debating and apologetics. So you live in the U.S. full time now. And so how did you go? So from 2014, when you left CCBR and you started to speak full time, Mm-hmm. Um, how did you end up from 2014 to now living full-time in Florida? Well, the short answer is I married an American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I, when I started Love Unleash's life in 2014, I knew I was going to continue speaking in Canada, but I was getting more and more requests to speak in the United States. And as you've mentioned in other parts of the world. So I just naturally, I often say, wherever you speak, you typically get more requests or subsequent events from that previous event. 
And so as I would do more events in the U.S., I'd get more requests from the U.S. So I've spent the last few years probably increasingly speaking more in the United States than in Canada. Um, but I actually didn't plan on moving to the U.S. I you hmm. know, wanted to remain um, in my home of Canada. But uh, when you fall in love, that changes everything. So <laughs> when, I, when I married an American last year, we realized living in the States was going to be best for our family. So let's talk about a couple of different things. The first one I want to talk about is uh, Joe Scheidler, um, who both of us knew, uh, passed away last month, the godfather of the pro-life movement in many ways, um, a titan. He was just, I believe I met him for the first time with you, actually. Um, if in I, Chicago. In Chicago in 2013, there was a conference yep. about the usage of abortion victim photography, which um, this is acceptable inside baseball is when everybody started switching from the use of graphic images to abortion victim photography. Yes. Uh, I haven't defended abortion or have graphic images in like eight years because it was Dr. Monica Miller, actually, of Citizens for a Pro-Life Society, who's been on this podcast and wrote an amazing memoir, Abandoned, who said, look, we should stop calling it graphic images. Almost all images are graphic. We should start describing this Im- these images accurately, which is abortion victim photography. And there was a lot of people there, uh, Josh Brom, um, Andy Moore of SBA List. I met him there for the first time. Uh, a lot of people I met there for the first time I saw again at, at Joe Scheider's funeral, actually, uh, a week ago. Um, and I believe, yeah, I, I went there with you and we were talking about well, the best way to use these images. And as the Canadians, we had a different view than some of the other people on how to use them, um, a different views on where they were effective, because AVP is a very powerful tool, which means it needs to be mm-hmm. applied properly and carefully. Um, and that's where I met Joe for the first time. I was totally starstruck. But one of the things Joe is famous for is his exposés on abortion clinics. He has that famous series, Meet the Abortion Providers. He has the book that was on every pro-life bookshelf, 99 Ways uh, to End Abortion, or Closed, 99 Ways to End Abortion. I'm sure I'm sure your parents had that book as well. They, they definitely had that on their bookshelf. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but he was also famous for asking abortionists out for coffee and just having conversations with them. And you've done a lot of that. I've met abortionists before, and you and I actually went to Kermit Gosnell's trial, I believe the same year. Yeah, the same year. Yeah. Um, we had, we to, had a fun year, Jonathan. That was a pretty crazy year. Yeah, I just remember I really badly wanted to see an abortionist um, getting prosecuted, and I knew I was never going to see that in Canada, or that at least was very, very unlikely. So we drove down there, and then we went to Washington, D.C. Remember, we did a, went to a, a rally with, with live action outside yeah. an abortion clinic. Um, but what I wanted to ask uh, uh, you about is you're one of the few people who's actually sat down and met abortionists in a social setting. Mm-hmm. And I'll have two questions. One, what's that like? And how do you separate what they do from the fact that often they seem like very personable and nice people? And secondarily, does it, because for me, this would be awkward. Um, I find that it's very hard for me to debate in an appropriately surgical fashion. Um, with somebody after you've had a pleasant conversation like that. And, I, and I've noticed in your debates, uh, for sure in the last two, but I've noticed in also your debate with Fraser Fells and others, where they'll reference the super pleasant conversation you had, almost as if to remind you, and you were so nice. Um, <laughs> so what, what, is, what is that like? Oh, that's a good question. How to put it into words. It's, it's a, I don't know, maybe I would say just, fascinating experience almost like it feels like you're living through a psychology experiment trying to understand the mindset of someone who indeed can come across very pleasant um almost grandfatherly and yet before you met them they had come from work where they dismembered little babies and you're like Mm. 
how is it possible for someone who seems so nice to do something that that is so evil? Um, that was fellows, what right? Have, what was that? That was fellows, right? Fraser fellows. Well, fellows in Barham. My first abortion, the first abortion I debated was actually in Minnesota, a man by the name of Dr. Barham. Mm. And he was the first coffee I ever had with an abortionist. Before the debate, I had asked him, hey, are you willing to just get to know each other um, as people and build an atmosphere of respect for the other person. Of course, my language choice is very intentional, as you know. Mm-hmm. Some people say, oh, well, let's show respect for each other's viewpoints. And I can never show respect no. for the viewpoint of an abortionist, but I can show respect to him as a person who God willed into existence and made in his image and doesn't want him to do the evil he does. And so when I've proposed that idea of let's just have a friendly coffee, um, the first abortionist was open to that, Dr. Barron. And I remember like at one point I was talking about my niece who was only a couple of years old and he was talking about his grandchildren and he just seemed like a normal, friendly guy. And it was very interesting because he was my first debate of an abortionist. I remember I was hugely nervous, very, very nervous. And it wasn't that I lacked confidence in my arguments, but I realized I was up against someone who actually does what I know to look brutal. Mm-hmm but still embraces it. So how am I going to reason with him? And it was very interesting though. And I think it's a sign of the fruits of what you align yourself with. If you're on the side of truth and God or the side of evil and Satan is as the debate began, I was really, really nervous and agitated, but as it progressed, I became increasingly peaceful and I was so calm and it's like, okay, well, peace is the fruit of the spirit. Interestingly he began super calm. And I don't know if it was because the coffee threw him off, but he was just calm, cool, collected. And as the debate progressed, he was agitated. He was getting angry. By the end of the night, he actually marched out. And I never, he he didn't even say goodbye. Mm. Um, My second debate with an abortionist was with uh, Dr. Fraser Fellows, who I debated several times and had coffee with each time. And Again, I was taken aback by the fact that he was very friendly, very cordial, uh, very chivalrous. He bought my coffee. Um, And yet what he does and defended was was so evil. And then the third abortionist I've debated again several times and had coffee with was and is Dr. Malcolm Potts, who was the first medical director of International Planned Parenthood Federation. And I would say that he was like the other two guys. Now, what was interesting now about him, I remember once in our first coffee, I said, Dr. Potts, what made you become a doctor? Because mm-hmm. he wasn't just an abortionist, maybe right. an obstetrician. And, and he paused over the coffee. He just paused and he kind of looked up a bit and his, his eyes got a little glassy and he smiled and he said, I saw a birth and it was so beautiful. And I remember being totally taken aback like that is not what I would have expected an abortionist to say but it Mm -hmm. it goes to show as evil as what they do is there there is a human side to them and quite frankly in a twisted way the human side to them is what got them involved with abortion because all three men that I've debated are very old they became abortion they became doctors I should say uh, before they were abortionists, just studying in medical school when abortion was illegal. And so all of them at various points in our conversations have referenced seeing women brought into the emergency room as a result of back alley abortions gone wrong, where, you know, you've got 
feet and feet of small bowel hanging out of a woman's vagina or a woman is hemorrhaging to death or all kinds of different things. And so the human side of them was horrified by what they saw, was moved with compassion for these women. But sadly, they acted on the emotion in the, in the wrong way. And so instead of saying, gosh, I need to make sure women are supported so that they don't opt for such a brutal, extreme approach of having an illegal abortion, their response was to say, well, in order to make women safe, I just need to become one of the people that does this safely. Of right. course, not realizing it's never safe for the preborn child. And so they then got into abortion wanting to help women. And my psychoanalysis of them my unprofessional opinion is once you start down the path of something that's really evil, you will initially instinctively feel bad because the truth is written on our hearts. Your conscience will bother you. But in that moment of the conscience being pricked, you have a choice. You listen to the conscience, realize, oh my goodness, what I've done is wrong and, and, and change your life accordingly. But that's really, really, really hard and painful. So the second option is you rationalize and justify and tell yourself it wasn't as bad and maybe there was some good motivation. And typically the only way I think to feel better about what you've done is to do it again. Because if we repeat behavior, it's kind of a sign that the behavior couldn't have been as bad the first time if I'm willing to do it a second time. So then you do it a second time and you probably feel bad, but then you think, ooh, if I admit it's bad, that's going to hurt too much. So you do it a third time and then a fourth time and you do it so many times you absolutely dull the conscience. And that's my analysis of, of where those guys have, have come to. Did you ever have, I, I, so I remember watching, I think it was your last debate with Dr. Fraser Fells. And I think it was in 2014 in the spring, if, if memory serves, but I could be wrong because it's longer ago than I thought. Um, and I remember you showing a particularly brutal abortion procedure video that we'd created specifically for this debate. It's not one we show very often. It was one just for campuses. And that after the video, you just asked him, does that accurately depict the work that you do every day? And, and he said, yes, without flinching, like, you know, you know, it's horrible. It's awful. And I do it. And I remember uh, I wrote this a whole chapter about the, answering this question in my book, Seeing is Believing on why abortion victim photography is necessary, because it's the one question that always bothered me um, when I when I started working with um, abortion victim photography projects and then eventually came on to CCBR, which is, if this imagery is so effective, why doesn't the real thing change their mind? And and I, so I wrote a whole chapter on it, and, it, and it's, it's, it's very complicated, but I've had the chance to ask a couple of former abortion workers on this podcast that question, and I remember asking Abby Johnson this question because I could never figure out why watching an abortion on the ultrasound changed her mind, but she would go to the POC room, products of conception, or as her, her colleagues would joke, pieces of children. Like she would see the arms, the legs. And like, I've, I've seen actual baby body parts before. It's like, it'll churn your guts. You'll have nightmares. Probably it, like you'll, it, you will never, ever, ever forget it. And I also had Dr. Kathy Altman on. She's a former abortionist who did quite a few abortions and would, you know, pull the pieces out. Um, and I remember I asked both of them, like, why, why didn't you see the humanity? Like, these, these images, like, seeing these body parts, it's so obvious they're human that the, the abortion side pretends that our pictures are fake because it's so obvious, you know, that, that these are human beings. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked Abby the question three or four times because I really wanted to know. She finally said, I don't know. I don't know why, like, they didn't impact me. I just, 
I just didn't see it until I saw it. And Dr. Kathy Altman said something similar. She said, I was just, I was blinded. And then one day I saw it and I couldn't unsee it. And so I was wondering what you thought of this, this idea of people being morally blind to the obvious when, when like to the most obvious thing that possibly can, right? Like they're putting these babies back together on trays like jigsaw puzzles. But of the, the several abortion workers I've managed to interview, about half a dozen total, the ones I've managed to get to answer that question, just finally like, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't get it. Yes, I, I think it is a total spiritual blindness. When you commit evil, I mean, and lots of things are evil, but when you have the most innocent of human beings and the most vulnerable of human beings, who is not only incapable of running away from the abortionist instruments, but can't even make a vocalized cry to appeal to the senses of other people around to respond to that child's need. So when you have the most vulnerable, the most weak, the most innocent, and you attack that, you invite great evil into your life, which I think blinds you um, in in a very dark way. And I think of, you know, Saul who became St. Paul is what was he doing? He was killing Christians. He was persecuting people. And it's interesting because it was when he was physically blinded that Mm -hmm. he ultimately came to see. And uh, the same is true with uh, John Newton, who composed the hymn Amazing Grace, who Mm -hmm. had been a former slave ship owner and then eventually became a pastor and and was an inspiration to William Wilberforce, who fought to end the slave trade. But in the movie Amazing Grace, depicting his life, uh, there's this powerful scene where he's become so old um, and physically unwell that he's become blind. And he says to Wilberforce, I once was blind, but now I see, didn't I, didn't I write that? And Wilberforce says to him, yes, yes, you did. And, and then Newton says, well, now it's true. And it's, it's at the age of his life where he's physically blind, that he gets the spiritual sight of what he had done all those years previous to the slaves. And um, so sadly, abortion, in a sense, the evil of it has blinded these men or women who are involved with abortion. And we have to hope and pray that they have a Saul to Paul experience where one day they get spiritual sight. Anthony Eslin's most recent book where he talks uh, about our age of unreality, sex in the unreal city, it's called. He's, I think probably one of the two best Catholic writers um, writing today on the current culture. It'd be him and Mary Aberstadt if I had to pick. But he has this, this scene where he's talking about the difficulty with the sterile evils of our age is that so often they're perpetrated by very nice men. So he talks about how Barack Obama, who's objectively a nicer man than Donald Trump, at least in my view, um, obviously a more moral man personally in terms of, you know, remained married to one wife, was faithful to her, purity a very loving and doting father. But he, he, he was the one who famously said, and I remember this being on the signs, um, of the first display that, that I did uh, with you actually in Florida back in 2010, where he said, I don't want one of my daughters punished with a child. And Eslin says like, when you read a statement like that, you have to understand what's behind it. He's like, how can you be punished with a child? Can somebody punish you with a Rembrandt? Which I thought was a really powerful mm. way of putting it. And, and it brought me to this conundrum that I know I've wondered about a lot. And I've only, um, I, I've only like briefly talked to abortion workers. I've never had coffee with them like you have. What is it like to feel yourself liking somebody who does that? Because mm. they can be nice. As that, that's word. Yeah. I, I think, what is it like? I would say it gives, 
it gives you a sense of how we are in relation to God. He sees our sin. He sees our ugliness. He sees our, our terrible sides, but he also sees our good side and still loves us and and can look past that. And I, it's given me a sense of the mercy of God. I, it hasn't changed obviously my hate of what they do and how I also think they should be in jail for what they do. I think there needs to be consequences for the choices that they've made. But I've actually, I remember being moved to tears uh, thinking about Dr. Fellows on a number of occasions. And it's perhaps because I've, I've interacted with him the most and because he does late-term abortions. Mm-hmm. Whereas Dr. Barham and Dr. Fel- uh, Dr. Barham and Dr. Potts both admitted to not being fans of late-term abortion mm-hmm. and kind of leaning as time went on, you know, to the first trimester, but Dr. Fellows, I mean, he goes up to 23 weeks and six days, um, you know, a day shy of the six month of pregnancy. And so I've actually uh, deeply wept for him because I actually see him, um, not that he's ever made this admission to me, it's just perhaps it's female intuition or a, a deep seated hope, but I see him as a profoundly troubled soul who knows deep down, I, I see him as deeply tormented. I, I really think he is tormented. Um, and, and I remember, and Jonathan, you might remember this, I believe it was a life site article, maybe a decade ago or more of a abortionist in Eastern Europe somewhere, whether it was Russia, Ukraine, and he had become pro-life, but it was after years of having haunting nightmares Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. bloody aborted children, like surrounding him and, uh, of the children that he had killed. I, I don't remember too many specifics, but I remember the nightmares and how one of the lines one of the descriptions of the nightmares was that they would look at him with old and wise eyes reaching out their bloody hands and asking him why yeah yeah and and so i don't think we can think that these abortionists don't have those moments because well, it's interesting you put it that way and I, I will say for the listeners that um stephanie did not know that question was coming so it's pretty impressive that you managed to scramble on a dime and come up with that cohesive of an answer when i didn't tell you i was going to ask you that is I remember reading Bernard Nathanson's uh, book, Bernard Nathanson, for, for those who don't know, I keep on remembering that a lot of these people from the 80s are considered a long time ago for some people, and I have to refresh people on who they are. But right. Dr. Bernard Nathanson was one of the founders of, of, of NARAL Pro-Choice America. He ran a huge abortion clinic, uh, aborted 35,000 babies, including one of his own children, before becoming pro-life after seeing what abortion did on an embryoscopy, produced the film The Silent Scream, which was screened by Ronald Reagan, became a very high-profile uh, speaker who Stephanie's parents eventually went to here in Vancouver. Um, the interesting thing I read in his autobiography was he was the atheist uh, uh, abor- abortionist turned pro-lifer. And there was very, there's very, very few atheist pro-lifers. There are some. We both know them. They're, they're very nice people. But there's very few of them, and for, I think, good reason. And interestingly, uh, interestingly, I, I've heard in pro-life circles that there was actually priests and pastors who were told not to try and convert him because he was the pro-life movement's only high-profile atheist uh, doctor, and that was just you know too good a spokesperson to pass up in the secular culture wars. But I remember when I read um, when he went looking for God, what struck me the most was when he was asked why he so desperately wanted to convert to Christianity, and he said, it's because I killed all these babies, and if there was no God, there was no one to forgive me. Wow. And that was like, that's, that is why he wanted God to exist because yes, God was a judge, but otherwise it was just him and nothingness and the weight, the crushing weight 
of tens of thousands of children that he'd killed. And I just remember that really striking me. And, and then to wrap up the abortionist section of the conversation, I, I saw something that I just found really, really touching that I was going to share with you. And I was at, I was at uh, Joe Scheider's funeral um, last week. And then just prior to the funeral was the wake. And I, there was probably at least a thousand people going through the lineup um, for the viewing and then to offer their condolences to the family. And, you know, like half of uh, our friends were in the lineup. You would have recognized them all. It was packed with, with pro-lifers from all the way across the United States, COVID notwithstanding. And I, I, I passed the coffin and then I went around and I was, I was heading up to the truck with, with Andy Moore from Susan B. Anthony. Let's do it again. Both you and I met in 2013, actually, at the same Chicago mm-hmm. conference. And I was looking at the lineup still heading in because it was going all the way out the back door of the funeral home. And I saw doc, uh, Dr. Anthony Levitino in the lineup. And I just remember thinking, here's the godfather of the pro-life movement, a man who spent almost 50 years fighting abortion. And when he passed away in the lineup to pay his respects to this pro-life activist is a man who perpetrated abortions. Like that was just a perfect picture of what the pro-life movement actually is. That when Dr. Anthony Levitino realized that what he had done was wrong, he was welcomed with open arms into the movement by people like Joe Scheidler, who were not there to judge him or condemn him, but were just so thrilled that he'd seen the light. But right. I just, I wanted to take a picture of it, but I knew that, you know, it's not appropriate at that moment, but just the picture of a former abortionist waiting in the lineup to pay his respects uh, to Joe Scheider was like everything that I love about the pro-life movement in one sort of frame. Right. Um, it's Yeah. It's beautiful. It's, it's basically hate and love together. Hate yeah. for abortion, but love for the abortionist, love for yeah. the human person who has become a slave to sin. And a very similar kind of redemptive story of of mercy is that of Dr. Nathanson and Joan Andrews Bell. Joan Andrews Bell had was very much like a a Mary Wagner, I think, of the 80s and 90s. And she was was arrested. She she was at the funeral, too. Yeah. And so she was arrested doing all kinds of peaceful pro-life protests at abortion clinics. But I remember reading an article that years later when she got married and uh, was going to deliver her child she asked Dr. Nathanson to deliver her baby. So here's the man who had spent years killing babies and she had spent years fighting the type of work that he had done and established in society. But because he had come around and converted, it was like, I want to show you that I value you and I trust you and please deliver my child. So it's, it's just beautiful when you see um, the mercy in in a movement that is rightly grounded in justice it's it's a two-pronged approach justice which brings us to to the last subject is most of our listeners will be familiar with your book love unleashes life um which we we use very frequently at ccbr most people this this book came out in 2015 correct Correct. yes Mm -hmm. so most people will be familiar with it and and you've given literally thousands of talks on the material contained therein other people might not be familiar with a lot of the material in your latest book, uh, which I'm a bit familiar with just because we very frequently run into each other at the Canadian Physicians for Life conference where we're speaking on on similar issues. So tell everybody about your, your new book, where they can find it, what's in it, and let's go through a few of the principles that you lay out in the book. Sure. So um, as you have kind of gone through this expansion of the topics you cover from abortion to things like assisted suicide... I've also gone on a similar trajectory, seeing, of course, several years ago when assisted suicide was made legal in Canada. Now we have Bill C-7 that's trying to expand that evil to make it worse uh, than it already is. And so I saw a need to um, impart 
a pro-life apologetic on the other end of life. And whereas your book, which is phenomenal and I cite in my book, really focuses the message to a non-sectarian culture. So if someone is not religious at all, you make a solid case for why they ought to still reject assisted suicide. I wanted to incorporate a faith-based message realizing that sadly, a lot of Catholics and Protestants, evangelicals, whatever denomination people would identify as, the people who claim to be followers of Christ, thinking that in certain cases, if suffering is really bad, if you're really close to, to, to death, then maybe assisted suicide and euthanasia are justified. And so I wanted to develop an apologetic that spoke to Christian people as to why assisted suicide ought to be rejected. So it's called Start With What? 10 principles for thinking about assisted suicide. And if people go to my website, loveunleasheslife.com and click on the books, then they will see the link to Amazon where they can order a copy. So what are a couple of the, the principles that you have in the book, just to give them a taste of, of what's in the book? Because you've been working on this, what, three years now? It's been quite a while, I think. Yeah, it's, it's probably been about three years by the time mm. I started to finally getting it out. It was just released uh, just last month in January of this year. I would say that the the main principle is actually the reason for the title. First principle is start by asking what, and that is the title of the book is start with what. And it's kind of a play on the very famous business book by Simon Sinek called start with why Simon Sinek gave the most popular uh, Ted talk of all time. I think it's the most watched Ted talk. He wrote a book based on that title, start with why. And it's all about, Hey, if you're in the business world and you're going to do something, you need to know your reason for doing it. You know, your why then you will be really effective. And when I started thinking about the assisted suicide topic, I realized that when someone suffers and when they go through hardship, why is the question that readily comes to their mind? Why me? Why did I become a quadriplegic? Why did I get in this car accident? Why did I get cancer? Why, why, why? And the reality is we don't really get a very satisfying answer to that question. Why are some children victims of sex trafficking right now in the world, but you and I didn't have that experience and have had a relatively very good life? Um, Other than saying there's injustice in the world, evil exists, life is unfair, as the answer, there's, there's not much more to say. But I then started thinking, okay, although we're all naturally in the face of suffering inclined to ask why, what if instead we asked what? That when we face suffering, we ask ourselves, What good can come out of this? What amazing, wonderful, incredible thing can come out of this terrible, horrible, even evil thing? And when we ask that question, we actually get empowerment. And we realize we can't change the past. And the question of why is is oriented to the past. Why did something happen? Well, even if you identify why it happened, you can't undo it. But what is oriented to the future? Regardless of what happened, going forward, Where is there positive things that can come out of this? And so I cite who you're very familiar with and cite in your book, uh, Dr. Viktor Frankl. And he's a Holocaust survivor and a psychiatrist. And he has this great sentence where he says, despair is suffering without meaning. And his whole point was, all of us suffer, but we don't have to despair if we can tie in meaning in direct association with the suffering we experience. And he gives this great example of a, a teenager in Texas who became a quadriplegic from a car accident. And uh, he said to an audience he was once being interviewed in front of, let me tell you how she spends her days. He said she watches the news, reads the news, listens to the news. And whenever she comes across a story of someone going through hardship, 
difficulty, maybe natural disaster. She calls for an assistant to come to her, place a stick in her mouth, and she uses the stick to pound out letters on a keyboard in order to write notes of encouragement to people she read about in the news. And Dr. Franco says that, or said, that young woman lives a life of profound meaning. It's not that she's not suffering, but she's not despairing because she found her what? As terrible as it was to become a quadriplegic, as terrible as it was to not have the independence she had once known, her ability to empathize with others, feel their pain, and express encouragement was directly tied into her personal experience of suffering. And so the letter writing became her what, which transformed her life. And so um, I would say of all the principles, and I can certainly share others, yeah. but that's kind of the first and main one that I wanted to get across to people is we have to shift from why did this happen to me to what can I do directly related to and in response to what's got, what's gone on in my life. So I always say that the one thing I want people to take away from uh, the, the very short book uh, that Blaze and I wrote on, on assisted suicide is the question, um, who gets suicide assistance and, and who gets um, who gets suicide prevention? What's the one thing you would want people to take away from your book when they're done reading? That's a good question. I would say it's it's what I just said. It's mm. just to start by asking what. Um, I will say, though, that I did take your one takeaway because you're part of my chapter two. <laughs> okay. So the second principle is if humans are equal, we all ought to get suicide prevention. And then I talk about that very question that you pose. But I would say, yeah, from my book, it's to inspire people to look for their what. And then I cite very a, a lot of examples in my book of people who found their what. And even using stories that don't seem related to assisted suicide. I tell the story of Michael Morton, who's an incredible man who wrote a book called, um, uh, I think it's called Finding Peace. His autobiography is amazing because basically his wife was brutally murdered in Texas in around the 70s. And um, unfortunately, he was charged with her murder, even though he was innocent. So not only did he lose his wife, but now he lost parenting his son because he lost his freedom and was shipped off to a Texas jail that he endured profound suffering in for 25 years until he was freed by the Innocence Project, which took on his case and used new DNA testing technology. They found the actual murderer, which enabled him to be cleared and have his name freed. But um, this whole experience of profound suffering, you could say if anyone's to kind of be angry and bitter, it would be someone like him. He's not angry and bitter. Um, he talks about loving God and his church community and always believing God was there for him, even when things were really dark and tough. When he was in jail, he thought, okay, I'm going to pursue my education. I'm going to get my master's. I'm going to do these different things. Um, he, he kept thinking, what can I do in response to this situation? And even now that he's a free man, as much as he would dearly love to just live a quiet life, he thought, I have a responsibility to help other people who are unjustly in prison. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to now take it upon myself to work for the freedom of other people and fight for a more just system that doesn't allow innocent people to be unjustly imprisoned. And so that became his what? He knows what it's like to suffer. So now he's going to be, you know, a justice fighter for, for other people incarcerated. And so... Um, there's lots of stories like that of people who who found their what amidst deep, deep suffering. My final question would be, why should people read this during COVID? 
Uh, well, I would actually say there's probably no better time right now to read this book uh, because of two things. One, we're seeing assisted suicide on the rise. I've been following the news from Alex Shattenberg of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. And I remember being horrified reading an article that he circulated of an elderly person that was saying, look, if there's another lockdown, I want assisted suicide because I can't live through the isolation and I can't do it again. Um, so we're seeing people who would rather death than life because of the life that lockdown is giving them. But besides an increase in assisted suicide, very sadly, we're seeing an increase in suicide. You know, at the very beginning of all of this, I remember it was the weekend that COVID was declared a pandemic. Um, I was actually at the time in the States with my now husband, who wasn't my husband yet, and I remember texting as, as so my sister was panicked and reading the news being like, you need to get home right away. Like, you know, the, the world is falling apart. And I remember as I watched a little bit of news that weekend, I texted a priest friend of mine and I said to him, father, um, hell is isolation and heaven is a communion of person. And that is what we have seen now in the last year. People are miserable when they're isolated because we are communal creatures. And as image bearers, we bear the image of God Almighty, who himself is in relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when you go against our very nature and you fracture relationship and you isolate people, uh, you are going to have great despair that sadly is going to lead to a rise in, in suicide. I mean, we already know what happens when people are isolated. That's why solitary confinement is a torture technique. Um, we look at children from Ceausescu's Romania and when they were just left alone in cribs and weren't interacted with, and we see the profound abuse that that, you know, led to in terms of their mental development, their physical development. So if, if you really want to torture someone, make them be alone. And so with so many people that are tortured and despairing, this book is really important because although it's 10 principles for how to think about assisted suicide, it could just as easily be called 10 principles for how to think about suicide. You know, um, it talks about human flourishing occurs in a context of connection, that we need to be in relationship, that we need to focus on beauty and creativity. And um, so the lessons in here really are about what leads to human flourishing. Well, with that, Steph, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really enjoyed it. It's been awesome to reconnect with you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Stephanie Gray Connors. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to check out past shows for more conversations like this or keep track and subscribe for future shows, please go to lifesightnews.com and click on the podcast tab. Our show is up on YouTube. We're on your podcast catcher wherever you get your content. Once again, thanks so much for joining us.